Okay, so I'm recording my side. Um, are you... You're recording too when we're recording this. So let's start. Um, can you tell me your name and what episode of the Queen's Memory podcast you produced? Okay, my name is Stella Gu. So I'm producing the fifth episode. So it's an um, English and Mandarin episode. Great. And how did you get involved with the project? I'm Emily Reeves. And on today's bonus episode of the Queen's Memory podcast, I'm taking you on a behind-the-scenes look into what it takes to make the music of your favorite podcasts. Of course, storytelling is the first thing you have to make this story sound interesting or sound um, appealing to them. But music is a thing you can catch people right away. My narration and interview is a skeleton, and his music is a soul. Stella's talking about the music of Elias Raven, the composer of the Queen's Memory podcast. Composing music for podcasts is a unique task, even without the added challenge of representing all the different cultures featured in this season. There is not really such a thing as Asian music. Asia is enormous. There were eight episodes. I could have done eight different genres of music. And within each one of those communities, you could have picked another four genres. When creating a show, producers need songs that help guide the listener's experience without telling them how to feel. Music subtly and not so subtly manipulates our emotions, weaving in and out of our days through our phone speakers, blasting through car stereos, accompanying our commutes, and all the while shaping our lives and our communities. And as far as podcast production goes, this season of the Queen's Memory podcast was particularly unique. We have a lot of producers <laughs> for, for this season. That's like the special part of this season. I work with nine different producers from different backgrounds um, in different ethnic groups within the Asian American community. That's executive producer Melody Tao. You don't find a lot of chance for these ethnic communities to tell their stories. And especially in this kind of bilingual way. So basically we're doing every episode in the language that I'm familiar with the narrator so they can tell the story in their native language. They can express their emotion freely um, in their own language. And then also we translate it into English but keep that emotion. You can you can hear the sound, um, you know, when they're laughing, crying. You still hear what they said in their native language. So basically, you know that person better than just listen to the English translation. I sat down with Elias to dissect the music of this season and discuss the challenges and joys of composing for this multilingual, multi-ethnic podcast series. Hi, my name is Elias Raven. I am a musician based in LA. I composed the theme music and uh, background music for the entire Queen's Memory podcast. I've, I've been at it for three seasons now. I also release music under the moniker Big Voyage for UK-based label Circus Records. Play in bands and uh, do a bunch of other stuff. And how did you get connected with the Queen's Memory podcast? I got on very early. I knew Natalie, who started the whole Queen's Memory project, uh, not just the podcast, but the whole concept of doing a, a Queen's oral history project through the library. And that first season, all I really did was uh, an intro and an outro. 
the first season of the Queen's Memory podcast is comparatively very bare bones. The second season was mostly about COVID with tangents into the Black Lives Matter movement uh, and the protests. That one was more thoroughly scored, but still not quite entirely through and through. And then they asked me back for the third season, uh, and that that really is a full beginning-to-end score for every episode. And was that your first time ever working on a podcast? Well, that first season was. Are you a podcast listener? Not a huge one. In preparation for this, I did try to listen to some more. And there were some of the like big marquee ones uh, that I listened to in the past. Um, Shittown had just a great score. Uh, obviously a very different vibe. The narrative ones tend to be much more scored, uh, which makes them a little bit more interesting to me. And do you have any relationship with New York since you're working with the Queen's Memory podcast? Yeah, I lived there uh, for 19 years. I moved during September of 2001 and left in July of 2020. And how do you find LA compared to New York? I miss walking. I I would say that's the big thing that really grates here is having to drive. But there have been nice things, too. Uh, I have more or less turned back into a saxophone player after many years of mostly pursuing piano in New York, largely just to be quieter in my apartment uh, (laughs) when I was recording. And now I've got a little space to myself. I can be as loud as I want. So this season was a really unique project. Not only is each episode produced by a different person, but eight of the episodes were released in two different languages. Can you tell me a bit about how you fit into that process? So the way it worked is, yeah, every community represented by the podcast uh, had its own producer. I believe there's 10 episodes and eight different communities. Each one had its own producer um, who started off with a kind of vague idea of the subject they wanted to tackle and who they wanted to speak to. So when I first got to work, I was just writing what I imagined to be themes for the show. I spent a week and I just ground out like two minute potential theme songs for the whole episode. But I didn't have like an opening monologue to go off of. I was just kind of guessing at what the tone was going to be. And this turned out to be a theme for the whole thing. I guessed at a slightly darker tone than they ultimately went with. The kind of hook for the season was going to be the Stop Asian Hate movement. You know, that that did play a role, but for the most part, these tended to be more positive stories. And I had largely missed that in, in my first guesses. After that, scripts started coming in, just outlines, and the scripts were all very, very different. Nothing had been recorded yet in terms of the interviews, so I just started writing music to what I imagined would fill the needs for each one of these communities. At that time, I was not doing anything at all to personalize the music for each episode in each community. I knew that people were going to be selecting mostly from a library of music that I had written out ahead of time. So I wanted to keep it something that anybody could pick out. The first person to reach out to me and ask for something very specific to his own culture was Tenzin, who produced the Tibetan episode. That was interesting to me because I had actually been under the impression that I should probably try not to do anything that was going to sound noticeably Eastern because I am white and 
you know, there's the, the issue of cultural appropriation. But Tenzin reached out uh, and he reached out at a kind of good moment when I was still in just kind of brainstorming mode. And he sent me music by somebody he actually knew personally a little bit. So it's a guy named uh, Tenzin Shoigal. I, I pray I'm pronouncing that correctly, but he is a Tibetan traditional musician who's worked with Philip Glass. He worked with him on a documentary called The Last Dalai Lama. And I listened to it and actually thought it was really cool and really impressive. There was one track in particular on the, the Last Dalai Lama uh, soundtrack called Grand Welcome, which I found really evocative and also seemed to tie back to some principles of modal jazz, uh, which is to say that it really revolved around, you know, in Western music, you would call it a pedal point. You know, another term you could use is drone. Um, it had a tonal center. I think, it, you know, these deep horns and they start at the beginning and they they do not stop for the rest of the piece and everything else kind of swirls around this big thrumming low C. And I realized that, that that sounded to me a little bit like Coltrane. It sounded a little bit like stuff that I actually am a bit more familiar with and, and know how to do. The 60s modal era of jazz really was looking east and it was looking very specifically to indian music but it, it kind of shared in common the idea of using these static drones to set a world and a mood and a, a kind of hypnotic vibe so what i tried to do with that tibetan episode is i knew i wasn't going to make authentic tibetan sounding music but maybe i could make something that sounded a little bit like a hybrid between you know new york's traditions and tibet's traditions first exploring and researching for those episodes that wanted you to embody the culture sound, what was your process like for finding the right inspiration? The main thing was I would take all my cues pretty much entirely from the producers. Because I had to work quickly, I didn't research super, super deeply beyond listening. The Urdu episode was probably one where I actually did the most research because I didn't even know the names of the instruments that I was going to need to approximate. I went on to Wikipedia for a list of instruments. And what I got from that is for a typical quali instrumentation, they usually have one guy's playing harmonium, another guy's playing a stringed instrument, um, and then four guys are clapping and singing. And that did actually turn out to be quite helpful because, for instance, uh, they use specific types of percussion, and I was able to track down through sample libraries, copyright-free samples of people playing those instruments. So in the Urdu episode, the percussion in the kind of long, quali-sounding track is not me playing percussion. It's short loops that I kind of arranged and overlaid, like one man playing a tabla, another man playing like a deeper percussion instrument.
process? Were you working with any instruments that you hadn't composed with before? And the Urdu episode, actually, she wanted uh, a quality song. She wanted like this big, buoyant, joyful song. So in that case, I was using my keyboard presets to imitate uh, a harmonium and a sitar. And those are not instruments I'm, I'm super familiar with, but I was playing them on a keyboard, uh, which I do know pretty well. I would say that to make the harmonium sound realistic, I had to listen to actual harmonium music and note how they played chords a little bit differently than I would usually do it, which is to say that they tended to play a bass line in the left hand, a very simple bass line, and then the chords would sort of come in as harmonizations of the melody in the right hand, uh, which is different than my usual kind of jazz technique of playing chords as blocks in your left hand and melody in your right hand. It is worth noting that I don't I don't play guitar very well at all, but almost everything I wrote on guitar made it into the podcast, which I think is maybe a note for me in the future, uh, which is that, you know, I was forced to keep it simple on that instrument because I am bad at it. And keeping it simple, I think for podcasts is really the way to go. You cannot draw attention to yourself in the role of scoring a podcast. You've got to fade into the background. How do you find having a built-in story then changes your process of writing compared to your other work, composing music in different settings? This one has been interesting in that I did not actually have much material to go on when I started composing. So they didn't send me like full audios where I then got to like match the mood after the fact. I did a, a fair amount of that actually for the second season. In that case, they were kind of doing each episode one at a time, and then I would have like a week to add what I could. I actually did like that because I, I would just sort of improvise along to what the people were saying. And I, I usually found that I was able to find a tone that I could translate to music. That felt really good. It felt I did not actually know I could do that, really, which sounds horrible. Uh, when you're a musician, you're supposed to be kind of translating your emotions into music. That's not always how it really works. And I think, especially as somebody with a fair amount of jazz training, you're kind of translating scales into music as often as you're translating feelings into music. You're, you're translating ideas into music. Uh, my jumping off point for a lot of my own music is I would say, well, what if I try something in 5-4? Uh, and then I kind of mess around until it feels good or until it's interesting to me. I would listen to them speak and I would play and I would try and find, you know, the kernel that would work all the way through. That was neat. I really like that. I want to do more of that. That, for the most part, was not how this third season played out. I came on really early in the process and I just tried to do it by instrument by mood. So one day I would focus on making piano demos and I would try to hit a couple moods for the piano demos. One day I would focus on guitar and try and hit a couple different moods on guitar. I found that in the end, my moods just tended to be consistent through each instrument. So when people wanted pensive, backwards-looking nostalgic stuff, uh, they tended to draw from the guitar folder because that's, I guess, how I'd been feeling that day. A good example of the kind of weirdness of this hybrid approach would be the Mandarin episode. The Mandarin episode really stood apart from the others as being just extremely sad. 
had to do with like the worst thing you could imagine happening. Just a, a horrible tragedy, you know, this, this entire family drowning. And all I knew about it beforehand was the subject she was going to tackle. Uh, I didn't really have a sense of how the interviews were gonna go or sound. To a certain extent, she was the episode that I composed the most for in the library ahead of time. She was going to need a much darker vocabulary than everybody else. And I think that made her job a little bit easier in the end, finding music, because much of it really was made with her in mind. Another example would just be one thing that came up over and over in the podcast was people wanted music that sounded a little bit like flashback music, you know, like we're, we're going back to my childhood in, in this other city. Uh, and they needed something that kind of was evocative of like remembering something from your past, remembering getting on the plane to leave your country. So I spent a day trying to make music that sounded like nostalgia. And there was one piece in particular, electric bass, troubled melancholy, that actually did wind up in every single episode. Um, you know, that was, that was one where I just kind of got lucky uh, and, and hit it out the park. I, I noticed that a lot of episodes would have kind of buoyant street scenes, you know, a list of like, here are all the great Korean restaurants and candy shops and businesses in my stretch of Queens that I love so much. Or here is the, the mural that means a lot to my community. Um, it's being unveiled. So I, I had this one kind of like celebration theme that ended up in a few. So you're creating this music library that then the producers are pulling from. Is there a point where you come back in after they've worked with it to transition the scenes or anything? That was different for every single person. Usually what would happen is there would be a phone call with the producers and they would give me the parts that they wanted scored and for how long. And I would suggest maybe four or five songs out of the library that I knew would maybe fit. The thing about the library is by the time it was done, there was about two hours of music in it. And that was a lot to ask any producer to kind of keep straight on their own. But I kind of knew which ones were happy, which ones were sad, which ones were evocative of regret or nostalgia. And so I would generally guide that process a fair amount. The Mandarin episode is a good example. Um, she chose from the music library found things that she liked and placed them on her own. And then I came back in to elongate the songs more naturally for her. And then there were episodes like the Bengali episode where, you know, she really wanted music that was going to be specific to her culture. She had an interesting one too, which was that there was one that she liked in the library that she actually wanted a little bit more of a like Bengali vibe added to. So I took one track and just added sitar to it. And it actually ended up working pretty well. So yeah, every single episode was 100% different. Something really unique about this season is that each episode is also published in the native languages of these communities. 
Did you have to make any adjustments for those translated versions? I did not have to, but I do think the Tagalog episode ended up with some pretty significant length changes that generally everything spoken in English took longer to say in Tagalog. Many people in the English language episodes would have a layer where you would hear people speaking in Mandarin and then English being spoken on top of that. And that it got a little bit busy and it did, I think, affect people's choices from the library. Uh, part of why busier tracks ended up getting kicked to the curb is that it was already quite orally busy. I think because producers don't want to distract from the story, there tends to be these patterns that keep popping up in podcast scores. You know, I've heard podcasting music described as marimba land. Yes. <laughs> they love the marimbas. They Everything I wrote marimba. with the marimba made it in. Every single thing. It's wild. So as a composer, how do you toe the line between wanting to create something unique and in your own voice, but that doesn't distract from the story? It's hard. Uh... I would say for one thing, as a saxophone guy, the saxophone sounds just like a voice. The saxophone sounds more like a human voice than just about any other instrument. And for the most part, I was not able to sneak much in as a result, I think. The marimba, xylophones, vibraphones, podcast producers really, really gravitate towards them. Which is kind of funny to me as a musician, because I don't think of those as necessarily the most flexible instruments in terms of tone. Uh, everything you put on a marimba is going to sound kind of quirky. Um, you would not score a funeral to a marimba. <laughs> yeah, how do you get away from the marimba thing? You do your best, uh, but they will drag you back to it. Um, I did a podcast theme for a friend's podcast, uh, and I wanted so badly not to have any marimbas, and it that it it has marimbas. It's it's basically marimbas. Um, somebody I was sold it as he wanted something that sounds sort of like Tom Waits, and I was like, great, yeah, junkyard percussion and acoustic guitar, and I'll I'll put a kind of flatulent saxophone on there. Uh, and in the end, it's, yeah, it's marimbas. <laughs> I think how you get around it is that, A, you don't entirely. It's there for a reason. It's not that people are wrong. Uh, marimbas are useful. They don't get in the way of the voices. B, you just don't offer that option first, you know? Uh, but you do keep it in your back pocket because you know it's, it's coming. Um, don't run away from it. Just don't start there, I think is how I approached it. You just, you have to make peace with the marimba, I think, to score, to score podcasts. So let's go back in time and hear a little bit about your music background. When did you first discover your love for music? My elementary school didn't have a music program when I was little, little, but maybe around fourth or fifth grade, they started one. And to kind of jumpstart it, they had the middle school jazz band come and play for us. And I was just blown away. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. You know, so loud and everybody looks so cool. And uh, they also showed us a video of the high school jazz band going on. It's like annual trip to like Disney World or someplace like that. They were on water slides. They were handling saxophones, which is just this really cool looking instrument. And I was just sold. I did start playing saxophone. I, I went through a real uh, Mancini phase. So like Pink Panther and Peter Gunn and those kind of corny, like 70s, 60s, jazzy soundtrack pieces. I really, really loved. 
And it was, you know, kind of off to the races from there. But I think what kind of really captured me and made me want to do it more as a career didn't really happen. And and this is embarrassing to admit, but it wasn't really until the advent of like ska. Do you remember ska at all? Mm. It involved instruments that you played in your like high school jazz or symphonic band. It was a big moment for band nerds, which I was. It was grunge and then it was new metal. And suddenly there was this music made seemingly for and by band nerds that was on the radio and popular. So I started a ska band and I remember playing our first show in like the courtyard of our high school and a girl I had a crush on danced and I said, well, this is this is it. This is what I'm doing from now on. You know, so my motives were never entirely pure. I, I don't think. I think uh, th- there was part of me that is still probably chasing the high of like a moment's acknowledgement from you know Camilla Medici in ninth grade or whatever. But <laughs> a lot of my formative memories having to do with music do kind of come from that period, being a teenager and kind of getting the sugar high of hearing a new thing and it just you know turning your personality inside and out. How would you say your style as a musician has evolved from there? Uh, My style now is all over the place. On the one hand, I have this stuff that is kind of jazzy classical minimalism where I'm playing saxophone into a loop pedal and composing these kind of long form pieces where I actually do like set pencil to paper and make sure that the counterpoint works out. That stuff turns up on Bandcamp. Then kind of wholly separate from that is this more just like pure electronic music mostly released under the moniker of Big Voyage. Uh, I've been signed to a label since 2014, have been putting out through Circus Records um, since then. That has also been a bit of a moving target in terms of genre, but it is settling down now to be more of a jungle and drum and bass thing with uh, like jazz influences. The kind of last thing is just the, the work for hire stuff. That really rewards having had a like diffuse musical life. Being a bit of a chameleon has not helped me in my music career as a solo artist at all. Uh, it's it's probably hurt. You know, you throw people off very quickly. People want one thing from you. If you give them three, they will drop you by the second. But when it comes to uh, making music for a podcast that has, you know, uh, I think 10 different producers in the mix and each one of them wants something very different, helpful for that, for sure. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It was really great to hear more about your process. Is there anywhere you'd want to direct listeners towards? Uh, I have an album coming out. It's called Tardy Grade. It should be out this summer, um, probably on Circus Records. And it's electronic music uh, with a lot of jazz influence uh, and other stuff thrown in there. Well, it's a lot of fun. Please look out for that. Check me out on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Bandcamp. Uh, And there you have it. Under the name Big Voyage. Under the name Big Voyage. (laughs) Well, great. Thank you so much for sharing. It was really nice to talk. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode of the Queen's Memory Podcast. The Queen's Memory Podcast is a production of the Queen's Memory Project. For full transcripts, show notes from this episode, and past seasons, visit queensmemory.org forward slash podcast. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Emily Reeves, in conjunction with Melody Tao, Anna Williams, and Natalie Milbrat. Mixing and editing by Corey Choi, with music composed by Elias Raven. I want to give a special thanks to Melody, Stella, and Elias for spending time with me. 
This podcast has been made possible in part by the National Endowment for the Humanities. Democracy demands wisdom. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Thanks for listening, and we're going to play you out with this jam by Elias. <laughs>